Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckables? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. If you're new, hi, how are you? Hope you're comfortable. Hope you're doing what you uh, just normally do. You're just trying it out. Like, uh, I've heard about this guy. People say he's good. One guy says he's annoying. They say his interviews are good, but sometimes he's a little rambly at the beginning. Uh, yeah, welcome. For those of you who have been here before, nice to see you. Nice to, to have you back. What's going on today on the show? Uh, Jeff Daniels. I talked to Jeff Daniels, the actor, who in that it turns out to be kind of a, a great conversation, really. I think he surprised himself. Last night was the last night of Hanukkah. And the night before last, I lit the candles. It was pretty exciting to uh, to light uh, so many, uh, to start out with so many, you, you know, because I started out with seven. I didn't light them until last night. That was the night that, you know, I've been busy, been doing Globe and getting home late. I've been studying my lines with Sarah the Painter, came over and she wanted to witness it. And uh, I begrudgingly did it. And I'm sorry that it was begrudgingly, but sometimes it's just a vulnerable place. I talked about that last week, but I did it. And the pretty hand-dipped Hanukkah candles made a very um, uh, compelling, colorful mess. And my smoke alarm did not go off. I said the prayer the best I could, did not know the second one, dug up my yarmulke from the, from the drawer where I have a couple that I've collected from weddings and then one nice woven one where I don't remember where I bought it, but I must have bought it somewhere. And uh, I laid into it. I leaned in to the menorah lighting ceremony. I have been trying to use my time efficiently, uh, working all week, doing the glow, been some late shoots uh, going into the night and a couple nights I got home, but then I get home when I'm doing the show and I work on the scenes for the next day and I've kind of relaxed into the process. I, God knows I should, this being the third year, but it's going well. But then uh, the weekend comes and uh, I want to get some shit done. There's some, there's some stuff that needs to get done. House stuff, things, uh, you know, making my new house uh, a house still needs to be done. Like, uh, like I, I have this room upstairs. It's supposed to be an office. So I want it to be an office, not just, you know, I, I, well, here's my problem is like, there's about 
it starts out with like three or four things I want to do. And then instead of just doing one at a time, I'll start doing one and then I'll drift and then I'll go do something else. I'll play guitar. I'll think about stuff. I'll read a book and then I'll go, go do some of the other. And I just sort of create this uh, multitasking rotation of projects. And then it just, it becomes bigger as the day goes on because you find other things like this weekend. The idea was to get the office, the, the study or whatever, the room that I'm going to allot for work in my home to get it set up. And by set up, I mean, just file all this stuff that is now in piles on the floors and get, and get it out of the way and, get, and make it look, you know, at least neat. And then, then I could start putting stuff in my desk. So the room looks like it functions and doesn't just become a storage room for a growing pile of papers and things that are in the, do I need all this shit limbo there? I just, I get a lot of shit. Do you understand? Then this stuff is all over the house. I don't know where it all comes from. I don't know how it just start. you know, just all of a sudden there's new things. I mean, I know that, you know, people and, and companies, publishers, record labels, they send me shit, books, records, you know, then people send me gifts and they have people send me big ideas and I look at them and then I put them on the table or the floor and they, they enter the first realm that they enter. The first circle is really the, uh, I might want to keep this shit that, that that's the first uh, level and they can stay there for a while and it, for years even. And then eventually it gets to the point where when I decide, like I did this weekend, that it's time to go through this stuff that they enter the, uh, do I need all this shit limbo? And I'll tell you, man, it can be a little overwhelming because like I'm in my office, I'm going through papers. I go, cause I, you know, I have all this stuff that was unfiled. You know, I'm going through bank statements, insurance stuff, pay stubs, receipts for things that happened a long time ago you know my birth certificate i got the deed to the old house i got the deed to the new house i got two marriage licenses both of them void at this point obviously i got this huge folder of panic papers and and like this aggressive documentation i did and all the actions i had to execute when my identity was stolen i got random song lyrics i got i got question sheets for for podcasts notes for interviews just all over the place you know, so can I'm sure that some of you can relate to this. And then there's the stacks of books and everything. It's just sort of like, do do I, you know, do do I need all this shit? What, and you don't want to throw important papers away. Why am I holding on to the to the marriage licenses? That stuff has to be done. That's over, right? But but they're on official pieces of paper that are issued by the state. It, it's almost like it seems important. It seems like it's a for archival purposes am i ever going to need proof of that i don't know who do i call who do i call to find out whether i need all this shit whether i can start shredding and throwing stuff away why do we hold on to it don't things lose their meaning or their importance how long do you have to keep this stuff man so i'm making the rotation the multitasking you know uh multi-floor multi-room rotation just moving around folding laundry, going through a few piles of papers, looking at books on the dining room table. The paper thing just overwhelmed me. Yeah, I think it was the marriage licenses. I mean, then it's just sort of like, oh my God, life just stacks up. And I don't know that it, it made me feel bad, but it does, I guess it makes you feel reflective. I don't even know if it made me feel that. I, it's just sort of like, I have lived a life. So in the middle of this rotation, I'm trying to read the new Beastie Boys book, which is great. And uh, then a box came, delivered, new litter box. So I had to set that up and go through the litter and clean the litter and change the litter. I don't know, but I'm doing the papers. I'm doing the books. I'm changing cat litter. I'm playing guitar. I'm reading. 
never one thing at a time. And, uh, and well, I, I don't think I have to tell you the, uh, the piles are not done yet. They're, they're smaller, but they're not done yet. So finally, I, I break down all the boxes. I get those in the recycle. That's part of the rotation now, breaking down boxes. And another box comes, and then uh, I don't open it yet because I'm in the middle of the other thing. And then I notice that on the shelf with all my little bullshit tchotchkes, there's some old Mexican hand-carved winged monkeys that uh, both of them lost their wings. I, I can't explain the whole story. So I'm like, all right, I've got the piles going on. i got the boxes going on. i got the reading going on. I've got uh, folding laundry. Everything. And I'm just like, hey, why not add gluing the wings onto the little monkeys? So I had two winged monkeys. I threw one away. It was irreparable. Both of these things. They're just, I just, there's all these artifacts from trips I took with women who are no longer in my life, wives. And these, these things, they don't seem to be triggers. They're, they're barely reminders at this point. Just stuff I'm afraid to throw away. I feel like I go through this stuff every few years. But uh, I'm happy that uh, one of my monkeys now had, has wings. One of my one of my little hand carved, hand painted, uh, funny winged monkeys can now fly again. Oh, that must be what's going on. That must be what Buster's chasing around in the middle of the night. My little carved Mexican monkeys with wings come to life like Pinocchio and fly around my house again. Ah, the poetry. So the big question. How does this stuff keep reproducing? Why more stuff? Okay, so another box comes, as I mentioned. And uh, I open it and I'd ordered a new vegetable steamer. Just that thing that goes in the bottom of a pot. Because the one I had was silicone. And I don't know if you have this problem, but I've become very sensitive and very aggravated I have a dishwasher. I don't always use it, but I, when I do use it, all the plastic takes, it, it all starts to smell and taste like that dishwasher soap, like this dirty dishwater soap water. Maybe my dishwasher's fucked up. I don't know. Do you have this soap problem where your fucking plastic and even the glass stuff p- makes the food taste like, like soap? Is it my machine broken or is that a common problem? Get back to me on this. But I had this silicone, is that what it's called? I had to look it up. The silicone... Uh, uh, steamer that I have had for over a decade and it just was making all my kale and vegetables and Rob and everything I steam tastes like soap. So I was furious after a certain point. It's been going on for about a year. It took me that long to order a new steamer and I ordered one that was too small for my big pot. So I had a moment of anger and then there's the next moment when you order things online it's like, did it cost enough to return it? No, it did not. It's like six bucks. So I went on and I ordered the larger one and now I'm going to have two. And that's how things reproduce in the uh, shopping online culture. Depending on how much time you have, you might like to return things. And But I wasn't going to return it for six bucks. Now, I, in my mind, I'm like, that's good. I'll have two. Uh, one for the little pot and one for the big pot. But it'll only be a matter of time before uh, before it ends uh, ends up in the do I need all this shit limbo. Two vegetable steamers. How often am I going to use one in a small pot? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, people. But I got two steamers now. So, Jeff Daniels, uh, this interview that you're about to hear was recorded in the Schubert Theater during the first week of preview performances for To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, That's a play adaptation of uh, the Harper Lee book written by Aaron Sorkin. Opening night is this Thursday, December 13th. Um, You know, it was... 
It was great because we. It was one of those things. I was in New York. I brought my equipment. I met Brendan over at the Schubert Theater. We went up into the uh, old offices that are beautifully redone in the Schubert. And we sat in this gorgeous room because I, I guess one of the Schuberts used to live there back in the day. And uh, I set up on the table. And Jeff brought his guitar in case we might want to do that. It's a little tricky to do that, but we noodled on it a bit before the interview. And we we just talked, you know. And it, it's interesting because Jeff is an intense guy. But you enter an interview, and I know from someone who's doing them with a sort of kind of like, all right, what what are we doing? And it sort of started in that tone, but then it started to open up, and you can hear it open up. And, and it, we we ended up having a really great conversation, a nice time, and we really connected. And, uh, and there was there's a lot of great little tidbits about acting, about his career, about other actors, and just about uh, you know his kind of journey as as an act. Because everyone knows Jeff Daniels; he's a great actor. And the play was very was very good. Uh, it, what's horrible about the play is how relevant it is today. And I entered this thing, oddly enough, maybe it's because um, I was lazy in high school, or I don't know. But I have not read To Kill a Mockingbird, and I did not see the movie. So this play was actually my first experience with the story, and it's a devastating story. And it was very well executed by the actors and by Aaron Sorkin, who I'll talk to uh, at another time. So this is me and Jeff Daniels upstairs at the old Schubert Theater in New York City. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. I saw it last night. Last night, yeah. How'd you feel about last night? Um, I thought it was great, by the way. We did well, but... We had like 12 changes in the second act. So you're flying around um, speed bumps. <laughs> Boom. There's yeah. one. Here, right. comes, here comes a change. Here comes a yeah. change. Here, don't forget what you're saying here about the, you know, you're right. making change. And then you go, I just word burgered that line. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Let me make sure I got the piece out that was necessary to move the dialogue forward. Yes. <laughs> what I meant to say. Yes. Yeah. And uh, something about Jim. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Yeah, but you guys, he's got some of you, uh, some, like, it seems like some of the actors have to push the stairs under the platform and then roll the thing out. Yeah. And, that, and, and it's just things that are new and, and this is, and they're making everybody, Aaron and Bart and Scott are making it better. Um, it's just, uh, it's a bit of a, you want to shush down the mountain straight down. Right. Yeah. 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 And we're not there yet. We have to. Right. And here's a new gate yeah. over here. Are you changing every day? 
Like, is there, are there tweaks? What, what kind of tweaks happen on a daily um, basis tweak, right now? There are now? tweaks every day. Yeah, right now. Yeah. To what? Lines? Movements? Cuts. All of it. Cuts. Really? Um, directing an actor to go deeper. And now he or she is now diving in deeper. And that changes the rhythm. So you're 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 riding them and right. their, their changes and uh uh you get the stairs instead of her getting the stair you know it's just stuff just right. it's, it's tightening the show it's it's you know it's all the things you do with a new play to make it great and on top of that it's Aaron Sorkin on top of that it's the it's the the speed and the mental dexterity that it takes to handle Aaron Sorkin uh well yeah and that that is that's uh it's a challenge and it's uh it's a great challenge but even this is what the third or fourth time you've worked with him uh newsroom i count that as three seasons three years of of doing exclusively aaron's dialogue and then it was steve jobs and i don't think i'm forgetting anything so this would be the third project yeah and when you do, like, when you say, like, because I notice that Aaron, like, when I watch his stuff on, in a movie, like in Steve Jobs' movie, mm-hmm. like, I liken it to, uh, like, you know, Cary Grant and Catherine Hepburn, that there's a patter to it. That, oh, yeah. Like, it's not, it, it, it becomes about the rhythm of the patter, not whether or not people talk like that. It's yeah. like whether you can deliver his style of writing. Yeah, I mean, where's the, where's the, I mean, it has to do with being a musician and finding the rhythm. Yeah. But it's also um, written. Yeah. means it has to be rehearsed. Right. And I don't mind having the writer in the scene. I I enjoy listening to Patty Chayefsky and Network. Right. I like that he's in the scene with Holden and Dunaway. I don't mind that. No, it's great. I think think too many actors have decided that, well, I think paraphrasing is best. And I think, let me just do it the way I would do it. And they – and and a lot of times you're in a movie where it's written by junior executives on the 18th floor and it's noted to death. Yeah. And you you go through the scene and you're you're in the line and you're talking to your daughter and you say, you know, your mother, Nancy. Yeah. And you have to and you're going, "Wait a minute. Why why am I telling my own daughter that her mother's name because we're reminding the audience so late. Oh, shut up." Right. So with an Aaron Sorkin or a Chayefsky or David Mamet or Lanford Wilson, Preston Sturgis, let's go way back. Yeah. You want the writer in the room. Yeah. I'm reading a book. I want to know. I'm reading Paul Rudnick right yeah. now. I'm, I love that I'm listening to Paul Rudnick and that yeah. other people are talking. What is wrong with that? So right. I've always, and it comes from the theater. It comes from. There's a tone. There's a rhythm. There's a, there's something. There's that, a respect for the writer. They've perfected it. They, this is what they. they, they trust me. They've worked on right. this yeah. before they gave it to right. you. Yeah. And they might've tried all the things that you're going to do. And these, the, the actor thing of, well, let me do my, it's, you're going to go down the road to your own little bag of tricks. Yeah. The thing that you do in every single movie that you think makes you special, that let me do what I do that America loves. Well, you're just a brand. Why don't you get inside Aaron Sorkin, get inside Attic, his Atticus Finch. Right. And find out what that is and go to some place you've never been before. Otherwise, get the hell out. Yeah. Go do something else. So do you like I've talked to Mamet about like about his approach to acting, which I initially like just on paper and having read. You know, what I he, think I threw the book against the wall. Yeah. yeah, right. How he feels about it. Yeah. But I did take something away from that is that it is on the page. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you need is on the page. Mm-hmm. 
And, and you have to honor that first. Absolutely. And then build it from inside that. Don't change a word. Right. Especially a mammoth, a Lanford, or an Aaron Sorkin. Don't change a word of it. You don't, you're not allowed. In right. the theater, you are not allowed. It, in movies, somehow, somehow, somebody gave actors the permission to do that. I was doing a movie, um, The Hours, with Meryl Streep. That's heavy movie. Yeah. Yeah. But you're with Meryl. Right. And and I had done worked with her on Heartburn yeah. and I got the chance to do hours and went over and did. We're walking into her apartment, the character's apartment, and the director, Stephen Daldry, said, Meryl, just say a couple things about your apartment as you're coming in. And and she said, I have to write it too? <laughs> I had never heard an actor say that. And I just and she goes, you have David Hare, yeah. one of the great screenwriters, yeah. sitting over there. Yeah. Go ask him. And Stephen rightly went over and said, David, and he's something, you know, yeah. you know right. I hope you like it. Something, nothing, generic. Right. But, and he came two lines, and she goes, thank you. And, yeah. and I said, okay, that's it. That's done. That's yeah. that's that's the role model. That's it. I get if it's written by twelve people and exact. I get that. But if it, you got the real writer there, you. I did that on Looming Tower. We had Adam Rapp uh, was a playwright and yeah. had written one of the episodes, and he was sitting over there, and they're going. I go, Adam, come here. Yeah, that, tell him. What do you want me to say? Because that what it does for the actor. Then you stop trying to do someone else's job. You stop trying to write it to in between action and cut you're also rewriting can't do it right can't do it well, i had a, like a, an experience with that the other day like i did like i'm not i'm not here to talk about me but i do but sometimes. let's yeah i did one scene like a walk and talk with de niro on the joker movie and i, I pretty good right and i'd never been in that situation or on a set like that but with de niro like he like we did a run we did it we did you know we did the scene and then he went over and talked to the director who was uh, Todd Phillips, and then I'm standing there, and I'm not saying anything, and then Todd Phillips comes over to me and goes, you think you're being a little too big? I think you might be a little too big. You know, you do work for, for Bob's character. And I'm like, oh, that's what he just did. But I didn't take it personally, but De Niro didn't say to me. No. He's he, not, yeah. He did the right thing, and uh, and <laughs> on a film, too, and with somebody like De Niro, it's if if Bob thinks you're a little big, you might want to want to bring yeah. it down. Well, I was happy to bring it down. <laughs> sure, I, I, I did everything I could to bring it down. <laughs> so you were a complete zero. You were barely audible in the next take. <laughs> I, just, I didn't even talk. I just, I, I just walked behind him nervously. It's perfect. <laughs> Seemed like the right thing to do. Sure, built it up from there. But do you ever improvise? Yeah, when you when you're called upon to do so, I'm not good at it. I never took an improv class, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm okay at it. Yeah. If I'm in the character and asked to, uh, you know, do something. I mean, when you're doing Dumb and Dumber with Jim Carrey, you better be ready to roll a little bit. No, but yeah. often on Dumb and Dumber, I just go, Jim, tell me, give me something to say. When yeah. you say that, just give me something to say. Um, you could, uh, try say this. Uh, Fine, thank you. Again, I don't want to write it. It's your job to react to Jim Carrey. I just Carrey I worked really hard to make it work the way it is. Now, what? Now I'm supposed to come on. So when you started, where did you start doing the acting? I mean, when did it like dawn on you that you needed to do that? Um, it's still dawning. Yeah, um, well, you've gotten very good at it. Well, I've, 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 I, I kept waiting for it to end. Yeah. The the career I did. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was in high school. There's the, still time, Jeff. Yeah, sure. There, trust me. Um, 
they keep pulling me back. <laughs> the, the high school, it was a small town. They needed guys from South Pacific. What uh, town? A uh, little town called Chelsea, Michigan. That's where right you, you live now. I still live there, uh, Ann Arbor, right near Ann Arbor. Uh, the director was doing South Pacific. She needed guys. So I'm yeah. walking off a basketball practice where we did nothing but run for three hours because we were 5 and 15. Yeah. And we had just lost by 30 points. Oh, and good. I'm one of the starters. And yeah. you're just going, just get me out of basketball. Yeah. And she's going, Jeff, get in here. Because I was in choir. Right. I could carry a tune. Yeah. She hauls me up there. I do a funny dance in the middle of, I don't know what the song was. And then... Next thing you know, she's in, I'm in the show, I do the funny dance, and in front of 700 people, and I know exactly what to do, and I'm not nervous. Right. And you don't have to make a shot. Don't have to day. make a shot. And then she gives me Fagan and Oliver. Then she gives me, wait for it, Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. Sure. Blonde. Yeah. Midwestern, 18. Not a clue what Jewish was. But I went to see the movie six times, so I did a dead-on impression I of Topol. Lo- oh, good. I would have loved to have seen those costumes. I wonder how they would play today. The- <laughs> <laughs> I remember spraying the blonde hair with gray hairspray paint and a, a glue-on gray beard. And you did I did it all. And. And, and and but I knew I knew what to do. Yeah, I could get out in front of those people and I could work them. I could pull them in. Sure. I could push them away. Feel I the could timing. T- t- yeah, at eighteen. So I was a natural. I there was a lot I didn't know, but I was a natural at it. Kept going to college, got a break, went to New York City, joined Circle Repertory Company. But what about your folks? Were they into it? My dad ran a lumber company, and uh, I'm the oldest son. How many? How many kids? Uh, three. My brother runs it now, but I was being groomed to be the lumber guy. family business. It was. It would have been third generation, and I took trigonometry. I took geometry. I took algebra. algebra I barely For lumber. I mean, things have to fit in in houses. Yeah, that takes geometry. You have to be able to tell the customer. But when you're pulling a D plus after studying three hours the night before with your father, and you're still pulling a D plus on the test, and you're throwing the book up in the air, and your dad's going, "This is just yeah. not going to." Yeah. Um, no basketball, no lumber for this. No, kid. Well, then I got the the, and they saw it. They saw this natural ability in this kid. Yeah. And the teacher had said, uh, who had the choir teacher, the musical director, just kept saying, "Watch this kid. There's something going on. I don't know how good he is, but there's this is unusual." Which is also, on some level, horrible news for parents. Like, guess what? Your kid might have a future in show business. Well, they. But we're in the Midwest. We don't know what show business is. Isn't we, that weird? You don't, do you? No. And New York City is a place where people go to die. Yeah. You know, it's <laughs> like getting shot or yeah, whatever. It's, it's Just, the '70s. Yeah. It's it's not. It kind of did go. It's yeah. before Rudy saved the day. Right. You know, way so, before. And yeah. the, the city was depressed and broken. Oh and my God! Bombed and, out. And, and Son of Sam hadn't happened yet. Yeah. It was just. Just drugs and weirdness everywhere. Yeah, and and uh, and hang on, gay people. Yeah, well, they know. they live there, right? So that, but they looked at that, and I remember coming home. I, I did a thing at a college that the artistic director of Circle Repertory had come out to pick up a check to direct some college kids. The head of the department at Eastern Michigan University was his old college friend from Northwestern. And he's directing a bunch of college kids. Marshall W. Mason, would you come out and direct these college kids? Right. Got the lead in Summer and Smoke and Hot Baltimore. And uh, before uh, Marshall went back to New York, he said, you know what you should do with your life, don't you? 
and I'm 21, and I go, well, you know, I think I like to be an actor. He said, you should come to New York. You should join the Circle Repertory Company as an apprentice, no guarantees, but you should chase acting. So I went home with my lumberyard father and my housewife farmer mother. Yeah, she comes from farmers? Farmers, and I said, this is what I'm being offered. And my dad looked at my mom, and he looked at me, and he said, you should go. Really? Pretty good. That's great. Pretty good. Did you grow up with, uh, was it a conservative household? Were you, you know, hammered with? Republican moderates. Yeah. Republican moderates. So decent people. But. A little nervous. <laughs> I, I, they said you should go. Yeah. There was no hesitation. There was. Did it surprise you? They saw it. Um, did, was it like, did you get emotional? I mean, was it one of those things where it was like, uh, you wanted no. to? No. No, because I think it was, why don't you go, and, and it wasn't even go and try, and then when you fail, come home, and you'll put you in the, I knew I had the lumber company. Yeah. I might have been on the counter going, what would you like today? But I, I knew I had the lumber company. The simple son. Were the younger brothers running things. <laughs> yes, I, yes I, would have, I would have been working for my younger brother, definitely. Yeah. But um, no, it was, no, I have to see this through. Yeah. And then I went to New York and, and waited to fail. And this was 72? 76. Okay. So and where do you move? You first get here. You must have, had you been here before? No, I stayed with uh, Marshall for a couple of weeks and then I got a one room apartment on 23rd and 7th Avenue. Okay. Pretty. What was going on over there then? Not much. Not much. Chelsea. Oh, it was Chelsea though. Kind of. Mm. Almost. Yeah. It was, it was 23rd and 7th. Yeah. Um, the next year, Son of Sam happened. Uh, also, the blackout. Remember the blackout? Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was understudying on Broadway, and then walk, blackout happened. Walked down to my apartment. I was on the tenth floor. No lights. No elevator. We're calls gotta, from home. Are you okay? Is it? No. Be careful, son of Sam. No. 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 I heard the lights didn't go on. <laughs> you know. Yeah. 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 That. Uh, yeah. They didn't go on. So what was this? How did this circle rep work? So you come out here. You're the new guy. Who's uh, who are the big guys? You're apprenticing. I mean, um, apprenticing. Uh, it was a company of people that um, uh, they had done Hot El Baltimore. Uh, you know, Judd Hirsch was in that. Um, soon after I came, Bill Hurt showed up. Oh yeah, Chris Reeves showed up. Oh, that was that crew. Yeah, but there was a group of people: John Hogan, Danton Stone, Stephanie Gordon, Tanya Berrison, Trish Hawkins, Nancy Snyder. Solid from who had been taught by Marshall Mason. This is kind of listening, reactive acting, yeah. that you are part of a whole. Don't try to stand out. That was try the training? To, yeah, and, and it served me really well in film as a supporting actor, which is how I really started out. So none of the, you didn't do any of the Meisner, Stanislavski method? He took Stanislavski, he took Meisner, who took it from Stanislavski yeah. and created his own thing. It was like a third step, uh-huh. what Marshall did. Uh-huh. So it was based on Stanislavski, based on Meisner, but Marshall wrote his own book on it, and that's the book I use today. And those guys like Reeves and uh, and Hurt, they they came out of Juilliard, right? They came from elsewhere, and yeah. so there was a bit of a speed bump for those of us who were trained under Marshall. Yeah, and but you know, Bill, extremely talented, Chris, talented. You know, they they fit in, um, but it wasn't the same as those of us who had been through it, right? Because they like someone like Hurt, it seems awfully thinky. 
Stinky? Thinky. Thinky. Yeah, like, you know. I have never, a, that, is that a word? Yeah, I use it a lot. Where, it you know, is where now. Thinky, where he, you know, just, he seems to process. You know, there's, like there's, there's a process going on with Bill. There's some <laughs> cerebral stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, but he's fun. All yeah. you got to do is poke him. Yeah. And I then, mean, with and a then, sharp object, but yeah. you got to poke him and then he's there. Yeah. <laughs> so what? What so you apprentice for how long? What does it mean to apprentice? At apprentice means you uh, you. Uh, I went right. He he had a part for me. This was the spring when he said, "Why don't you come to New York?" In the fall, he had a part for me. It was a play called "The Farm" by David Story. Richard Gere had done it the uh, uh, like six months earlier. Yeah, and Richard got um, the Terrence malick Nellis movie i forget which oh yeah days of heaven maybe that one he yeah. got that i think that with uh, brooke adams right so richard couldn't do it gear couldn't do it and he found me and said jeff can do this part why don't you come and be an apprentice and the first thing i'm going to do is put you in a play at circle rep off broadway didn't have a clue what i was doing uh-huh and and really let marshall down i think and uh Really? Uh, yeah. It didn't go I got, well? It, it, I wasn't the guy in Summer and Smoke. I just, I just got scared. Sure. And, and um, you felt that? It's a horrible feeling on stage, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you just feel like you're around people that know a hell of a lot more than you do, and, and it shows. But uh, the critics were whatever the critics were. But Milton Goldman, who was running ICM at the time, big agency in New York City, was there to see Jack Gwillem, his 65-year-old client, yeah. who was playing the father in the play. Right. And he saw this kid, and he hauled, he's, he said, I want to meet the kid. And he hauled me up, and it's and it's everything. It's Milton Goldman. It's the it's you knew the, you knew about him. You knew enough. About I the didn't business. know anything. Oh. It's the it's the it's the posters on the wall. It's the little kid, and Milton's going in the formal suit behind his desk at ten in the morning, going, "You're good enough to circle up in Marshall Mason. You're good enough for ICM. Tell me a little bit about yourself, kid." Yeah. Well, I was just in Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof, and he started laughing, and he said, and I he wouldn't stop laughing, and I said. No, I was I was good. He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eric, Eric, come here a second. I want you. Come here. Tell him what you just told me. Tell Eric what you just told me. I was Tevian Fiddler. Now he's laughing, and he goes, "You're going to be fine, kid. You'll yeah. be fine. Go yeah. down to the commercial department. Department. Yeah. We're going to put you in some Listerine and some McDonald's, and you know we're going to get you on that." Did so you do I that? did commercials for like five years. Yeah, so you started making money as an actor, though. Yeah, though. I didn't have to wait tables. Yeah, because I, I would make just enough on. I'd get one out of. 30 commercials that I'd go up on. Any and memorable I, commercials? I did about 12. Pepto-Bismol. Oh, that's good. Yeah. In the 70s. In the 70s. Yeah. Pepto-Bismol. I was a student at the University of Mexico City. And my parents from Long Island, with the camera around the neck and uh-huh. the Hawaiian shirt, came down to visit me at yeah. the University of Mexico City. And they said, how you doing, son? I said, pretty good. Uh, this was a you know precursor to Dumb right. and Dumber. Uh, pretty good. I um I just took a test. There five hundred of us have diarrhea, and um, two hundred and fifty of us had took Pepto-Bismol, and I was one of them. And boy, does it work! <laughs> Cut it. That was it. That was the spot. <laughs> what a, that's a hell of a setup for a Pepto-Bismol commercial. They went well, right not, to it. Not only that, but but you have to call your parents and going, you know, this week on, uh, you know, uh, Mannix, yeah. uh, in the 830 hour, I'll be, you'll see the Pepto-Bismol commercial. And they call all their, you know, their bridge club friends. And uh, Right. There you go. There, there you are. I talking am. about diarrhea. There's my son. But it, was, it was sort of interesting. It was like a, a real fear mongering about dysentery, about everything that you're afraid of about eating in Mexico. There it is. There's 250 
of us with diarrhea from being in Mexico. But there's a cure. Yeah, Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> yeah. So it was before the, like, that Yeah, commercial. it was before that. I didn't have to do that. So then after those commercials, when do you start to... Did you stay at ICM? Like, are you still I'm at I'm still I- there. I haven't moved. I, I uh, you know, I Paul Martino was an agent at the time. He picked me up in 1980. He's my manager now. And uh-huh. um, Eddie Ablons started his mail as Paul Martino's receptionist at, at Paul Martino's office. This is Eddie Ablons. Now he runs movies in L.A. He's That's how it happens. Of, you got to be nice so to all I've those people. So I've been with Eddie and Paul for since the 1980. I made my my mistake was made when I didn't I had no respect for any of them and I and I and you told them assistants whatever. I was just an asshole and then all of a sudden they're the running the business. And you're like yeah. you don't remember when I was younger. Yeah, I do. You fuck. And that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget that. That's Good true. luck with your career. That's true. Yeah. They don't. They have a long they're like elephants. Uh, so when does the how did you start doing the movies? When did that break? How did that happen? Was it the Jonathan Demme? After about Demi, three years Demi of Circle movie? Rep. Um, did a lot of plays at Circle Rep? Uh, quite a few. Fifth of July was the one that I really rode that one. Lanford Wilson wrote it. We did it off-Broadway. Then we did it in L.A. And You started in it. Yeah, well, I was, there was, I was one of about seven or eight people. And Lanford, every part was a great part. So uh, that was my ticket. That just kept me working and kept me... In, in what money you could get uh, in the theater. Do you love theater? Love theater. Um, because I, you did a lot of it. You did, you've done more of it than I think most film actors already. I think so. Yeah. I, but I it's hard re- to know. But I really wanted to do movies. I, I, I'm, theater was my ticket to movies. But, but that was always the idea. Well, yeah. I saw Dog Day Afternoon when I was in college in 76 before i moved to new york i saw saw it six times i kept going back to it and i wanted to figure out what pacino was doing i wasn't getting taught that every scene was so alive and so uh and and i i i went so i could think i thought i could see the script yeah and i could thought i could see him improv and then i could see the choices right None of which I knew until like three years at Circle Rep where I understood what choices are. You know, De Niro said an actor is only as good as his choices. You get the script. What are you going to do with it? Right. And so that it just I was just doing it. I didn't think about it. So I went. I said, wherever I have to go to figure out what Pacino is doing and how he does that, I'm going to go there. And so that was New York. Interesting. So they, it was the third thing down, the choices. You know, like you, you saw... Like, I wasn't even aware of choices. Just, right. You, just, you, do, you do it. You, do, you don't even think about it. So Yeah, and when you do it that way, it's sort of like, you, you know, it's a free fall in a way. I mean, it, like, right? Because choices at least give you something to land on. You're yeah, like, you, you know, learn all this stuff later. Yeah, you yeah. Know, no, I did. In I the just, acting club. But, I just you know, initially it. coming out, it was just like, I, I just, I did, I think I, people seemed to like what I did. You know, the, the movies, the Marshall came to me after about three or four years at Circle Rep and said, look, the next season is this, that, and the other thing, and you're not in any of them. So this would be a really good time to go chase a movie, chase the IC, chase ICM. And I said, you know what, I'll go now. And I, it was very great. I was, he'd been so great to me. And I said, I'm going to go to ICM and just let them have me. I'm not going to, well, you got to work around this play I'm doing at Circle Rep. No more. I'm going to go for a year or two and just go straight ICM. And, and that's when we started chasing movies. And there were a lot of auditions. Yeah. Can I ask you a quick question about choices and about, like, when you do, like, I just saw you do Atticus Finch, right? Yeah. 
Now, w- when you put choices in place, what what is the what is the emotional choice? I mean, I I know when you say I'm going to say this like this, I'm going to turn this way, you know, I'm going to listen this way, or I'm going to engage here. But what is the driving force emotionally uh, that you make, like for something like Atticus? Do you or do you just is it instinctual, or do you say this guy wants justice, this guy believes people are good? What's do you put something in place like that for yourself? I I, I, I simplify as often as possible. Yeah. It, I want justice is too big. Right. Um, I want Tom Robinson. I've got, I'm going to represent Tom Robinson. I want him to sign these papers. Okay. That's it. Yeah. That's it. For that moment. That scene. For that scene. That's it. That's all you're there to do. Now, through rehearsal and through the choices and all that, you've got the accent, you've got the optimism of no, you are, I am, com- they are completely wrong, and I'm a hundred percent right. You're innocent, Tom. You're innocent. Yeah. I, ex- you walk in the door of that scene. Yeah. Going, I'm going to be your lawyer, and here are the papers. Sign, sign the form in triplicate, and he signs the form, and I go, all right, I'll see you tomorrow morning. That's all that's going to happen today. So it's scene for scene, really. Yeah. 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 You sit with Scout on the bench and right. you explain to her what a mob means. Right. And how that's going to work for us. That's yeah. all you're doing. I'm just teaching my daughter. Right. You just happen to be watching. Right. How simple can you make it? I watch these actors, not in this show, yeah. but other actors. We're not, not naming names, but yeah. <laughs> and they just discuss it and talk it and they get in their head. They think they think too much. I think, how, how, what, how. The less I can think about things, the more you're in free fall. Because if all you're doing is going to Tom Robinson saying, just sign the papers. And, of course, there are, there are obstacles to that. Every good scene is, you know, you aren't going to get what you want easily. Otherwise, there's, there's no scene. Right. So here come the obstacles, and you've got to f- fight your way through those. With the same thing, I just want you to sign the paper I just, for your own benefit. Right, right. You know? Yeah. And so it beca- it, you start going forward. You aren't sitting back going through all your notes, all your, yeah, you know, yeah, and yeah. i got to show them this, and I've got to make sure I look like that. Right. That's all horseshit. It's right. Just, that, that, it gets in the way. Yeah. You want one thing. What is it? Go get that. Yeah. So you start chasing movies, a lot of auditions. Yeah. Do you, are there any that you can think of that you're like, fuck, I should have got that. Oh, a couple. Yeah, I was close on uh, American Beauty. Um, for the spacey part yeah kevin was uh, they were trying to do his deal and it wasn't going well and i met with sam mendez and i really you know i really wanted that one it would have been a huge leap to put me in that i was really nobody it's that weird position to have to accept it's like we're going to use you as leverage to get kevin to i was a backup right I mean, and I, I he didn't offer it right and i'm there i imagine there were two or three other guys that were you know in on that, that short list if kevin's deal didn't come through and then his deal came through and that was that but that was like that's the only one, really. I mean, it was... You like that part? Oh, it would have been a great part, but yeah. he did great in it. You sure, know? I yeah. mean, what, you know, that's not to bitch about. But What was the first movie? Something Wild? Uh, no, uh, Ragtime. Oh. I got into Ragtime. That's right. I had two or three scenes. Yeah. There's James Cagney. Yeah. 81 years old, sitting there, and you're in the scene with James Cagney. Pretty special. You did that? Pretty special. You're in the room. And he had that beard. He had like a curly mustache, right? Did he play that? He had a curly mustache. Was he the police chief or the fire chief? He was the commissioner. The police commissioner, yeah. I remember him coming in. He didn't want to do it. He didn't think he could do it. He was retired at his upstate farm in New York. He wasn't acting anymore. And Milos Foreman said, come on down to New York City. 
we'll, we'll do a screen test so that you can see that you can do it. And he reluctantly came down with his nurse, came in on a walker, yeah, sat there, and it was a four-page scene. Yeah. They brought in Kenny McMillan, the police chief, and three or four cops to just yeah. act around him. But we're in a studio at, at the PBS station here just to test Cagney, his request. And black and white monitors. This is 1980. You're black, playing a cop? I'm, just a, I'm one of the cops yeah. back. I got one line or yeah. something. Four-page scene. He couldn't do it. Mm. Couldn't remember it. Couldn't Brutal. stay. F- I just, it was, come on. Milo said, no, 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 no. We cut down to three pages, down to two, down to one page. Cut it down to one page. Still couldn't do it. You say one line. You say one line, Jimmy. You say one line. And then, you know, we cut, we cut, we edit. We just say one line. And Jimmy, and you look up at the black and white monitor because they were shooting it. Yeah. And you could see it. You could see the, the medium close up. And all of a sudden, the jaw sets and the finger comes up. And there's Yankee Doodle Dandy. There's everything. There's Cagney. Yeah. And it's still in there. Yeah. And Milo says, that is, we got that. You'll be good. That we do one line at a time. You'll be beautiful. One line at a time. Yeah. That's how you got to shoot those guys sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. But, you know, it, it was, it was, Clint is the only other guy. Jack's another one. Those three guys, you know, when they go, how do you, you know, Jack, how do you want me to do it? Yeah. And Jim Brooks says, well, I mean, you think, yeah, all right, boom, boom. And you look at the monitor, and then all of a sudden there he becomes, and Clint, I did a movie with Clint, Bloodwork, and he just, just casual, easygoing, yeah. plays golf. Right. He's that guy. Yeah. And then he sits in there, and he, you got the camera. Yeah, you got it ready. All right, good. All right. Anytime you're ready. What? That was action. That right. was, by the way, that was action. Yeah. And you say the line, and you watch Clint set the jaw, do the speech, and then at the end of it goes, all right, that's enough of that. (laughs) And it's done. But you see him become it and then come out of it. On camera. On camera. I I just had that experience because I couldn't figure it out. Because I was, you know, working with De Niro and watching yeah. him trying to get the lines in his head or whatever. But then you watch it, the pictures of it, or you watch it on the monitor, and you're like, "That's it's like you can't even explain it." I guess it's just years of experience, or they live on. The oh, it's so there's so much technique that that you 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 learn how to forget it. And these got Nicholson said, "You gotta you gotta know what the muscles in your face do." And you know, Winger Deborah said to me on terms, she said. You lead with your eyes. Just little things that yeah. you know on stage you've got the whole body you're looking at. Right. So when you say something there sometimes there's a physical adjustment to let the to pull focus to you to hit this line. Yeah. But on film, you lead with the eyes. You follow where your eyes look. You make a note of that. And then you maybe. forget them. And then you do them. That's what these guys know instinctively now. They know yeah. which camera's on them. They know what the they know what this looks like when they do this. They know what this looks like when the, the, the uh, Altman, Robert Altman said, uh, yeah, give me a reveal, Jeff. It's, what? <laughs> Where you're looking down and then you come up and you say the line. Then I worked. I, it was beautiful. It was a great movie trick. And then I, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I was doing a movie with someone who shall be related, named who will be nameless. And every single line was a reveal. Oh, really? Every single line. <laughs> Just the All of them. 
Yeah. Always found a way to look away and then come back up. Always looked away and then came back up. And you just wanted to look, what are you looking at? What's down there? <laughs> Which movie did you do with Altman? Um, what was that? Kane Mutiny Court Martial. It was a TV, oh, yeah. CBS TV thing um, with uh, Brad Davis, Peter Gallagher, Eric Bogosian. It seems like you got to work with a lot of great guys. I did. Even- I did. Altman was, that's where you learn how to improv. Altman is famous for, uh, he mics everybody. Yeah. And then he says, yeah, you're just, you're going through the door. Yeah, just you and your lawyer are going through the door, all right? And then what he doesn't tell you is that he's sending three people through the door from the other direction. Action. <laughs> and then you're doing the dialogue. And boom, boom, well, yeah, I'd say, yeah. And then one of those guys, other guy, says something to you. And now you're, what happened? Cut it. We got that. That's all. <laughs> yeah, just like threw all the obstacles at you in real time. Yeah, yeah. I just want to catch it on camera. Good, yeah. I got it. Clint's the same way. You really? Only, you only do one take. One take. He wants it to happen the, for the first time, and it does. And then like, that's free fall. Yeah. And because you can't go back. Even in your mind, you're like, I could have uh, If better. we go back, uh, it's uh, if I blood work was what, 10 weeks? Um, we went back twice. You want another shot at that? Thank you. That would be that would be great. Seeing how I butchered the speech, yeah. And did you did you start? It means Clint can't use it, yeah. right? Did you start in TV? Did you do little TV stuff? I did some TV. Uh, the commercials really were a great. You're in front of a camera, right. and you learn about that. You do you do a Burger King commercial where you're the the kid in the back cooking the burgers, and yeah. it's something about how great the burgers are. I don't know what the commercial is, and of course I did a whole four page backstory of him. <laughs> you know, he's in high school, he's supporting his family of seven. The dad died, you know, and the director's going, just cook the burgers. Yeah, and do you still do backstory? Um, not to the extent that the acting classes do, yeah. think is so important. I do do given um, circle taught me something called given circumstances. Yeah. Where's Atticus coming from? The backstory on, for instance, To Kill a Mockingbird for me is all, were all the books I read in the last six, seven months to. I wanted to know what Atticus saw when he was standing on his porch. goes beyond just Harper's book. Right. Jim Crow South, I got to know what that's about. And I got to know what it feels like in 1934 Alabama, sundown towns, the Green Book stuff. So you got to educate yourself to be You got to go to grad school Atticus. on Atticus Finch. Yeah. You, read, you read Joe Crispino's book about Atticus. You, you, yeah. you, all of that, you got to go to school. Otherwise, you're not going to – you're not going to – get up and over Gregory Peck. You just aren't. So yeah. I said, let's get educated about what he was seeing so that when Bob Ewell comes up on the porch in the play, I know that, you know, there's a lynching Thursday. You coming? Right. We had a good one about two weeks ago. We hung three of them. You coming? Y'all, you ought to come. This special. Got some liquor for you. Yeah. And it's not, it's, it's normal. Right. That's the normal. That's the common and you got to understand that before you walk on stage as Atticus. And so it's get educated, go to school, know more about what's going on back then than the critics, than some other actor who might do it. That comes from the Midwest, too. There's a work ethic out there. 
we will work all day. We won't. I mean, we will look at the clock, but 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 we will work until the job is done. And that's always that's been instilled in me from my dad. Yeah. So that's one of the things I told my kids. I said, "You're you're only special because I'm famous." That might get you through a door or two, but then it's also there are one or two strikes against you because of that. Your only way to beat the guys who think, oh, you're just the you know special kid of the famous father is you outwork them. Are they all going into acting? No. Oh. No. One thought about it, and then he just didn't. I said, you got to want it more than anything, and he goes, I don't. I said, well, then why don't you be the star of your own life? Why don't you go find out what you want to do? You, the only privilege you have is that you have time to fi- to find what you want to do versus what you have to do to make a living. Yeah. So you have that. I'll give you that. That's your privilege. But you got to work your ass off. You got to outwork other people, and you have to be a professional. You have to be responsible, accountability, all that stuff that I learned as an apprentice of Circle Rep, and my dad taught me. My theater company, that's what we teach. Are these kids and, and actors going to go off to be famous and be in movies? No. Some might, but most won't. Yeah. So what are you going to take away? Professionalism, discipline, behavior, accountability, responsibility, be a pro. And that means you outwork everybody else. Get to work. Do you find a lot of the people that come through the uh, your program know that they may not be famous? There are a few that... that that have the dream because yeah. the dream came true is standing right next to him. Right. Cause I'll walk into the theater company, I'll write a play and there I am. And it, you know, it's, it's, it can happen, but, but seven years in New York city before I got a movie. But it's interesting. Like I see it all the time where there's no way to tell somebody that it's over. Only they can tell themselves that. You oh know, yeah it's a fuck this business is ridiculous because oh it, you're the last one to know of course because you keep setting your precedent higher it's like well that guy didn't make it till he was like 60 you know like okay it, like, right. you know what i mean like it's so like it's sort of a there's a sadness to show business oh my god that is undeniable you can't you, you sit with college kids yeah I, which i do occasionally which i enjoy because you can't you, what you start is let me talk to you about rejection right and why you're going to need you know, antidepressants at some point. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Something. So, yeah. Something. So you're going to need some medication. Yeah. Um, nothing can prepare you for that. It's just how bad do you want it? And by the way, how talented are you? You got to look in the mirror. Be yeah, honest. That's it. What are your limitations? Are you really right. that talented? Right. Are you, are you, do you want to be Al Pacino? Are you that talented? Yeah. If you aren't, then shoot for something less and many people do yeah but i said i can't tell you that i can't tell you whether you're talented enough right but they're all sitting there going i got it i got it okay good luck good luck to you (laughs) all right get back to me and when you're i remember god i remember i was in a bar after a play and and uh, Richard Dreyfus was there. Oh yeah, and he was at the peak of his his career. You know, he was working with Spielberg. He was doing the whole thing, jacked up. I don't know about that, but yeah. it, but it was uh, 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 it was a it was a cool table to be at, and I don't know how I got there. And I was twenty two, and uh, Richard saw me, and he goes, he goes, "Are you an actor?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm just starting out." He goes, "Doesn't mean shit till you're 30. and he walked away. But there was something to that. Put in your time. Yeah. Learn the craft. Learn the techniques. Yeah. Don't just walk in the room on the, you know, riding the brilliance of your personality and charm. I ain't going to make it. Well, and you then you did the Demi movie? 
Demi was later. Something oh, really? Wild was, was later. Really? So there was Terms of Endearment. That there was, was before, Marie. Terms of Endearment was before Something oh, Wild? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was 83. Terms was 86. Or Terms was 83. Something Wild was 86. Terms was like, uh, I, I, re- I watched that again recently because I talked to Brooks not too long ago. I, uh, I love Jim. Yeah. Oh, he's a great guy. Oh. And that was like, uh, and that movie's great. I mean, like that that cast. Like, I mean, it must have been just insane to not yeah, it work. Was around. insane. I can't. I mean, to Shirley MacLaine sitting there and Jack's on set, and you're all kind of on set at the same time, right? Yeah, um, it, there was definitely a relationship um, dysfunctional thing working between Deborah and Shirley, and then Jack showed up after two weeks of shooting. I mean, Shirley and Deborah. It, it, what it was was, I thought, was Deborah going. We have a mother daughter relationship that is love hate. Yeah, and we're going to make sure we get the hate in there. Yeah, because right. Shirley was a little bit. Let's just make it. You know, uh, she was. She had a way that she was going to do it, and Deborah wasn't going to allow her to do that. And I watched that happen, which was an education. And then Jack shows up after two weeks of pretty much strife and and stress on the set. And Brooks was trying to get in there and trying to make it work, and just you know, I mean, the girls were. It was it was rough. Yeah. And Jack so shows up and says. Why are you having such a problem? <laughs> he was he was great. And as soon as Jack showed up, everybody got along. Everybody was fine. Jack said, do you want me to wave like this or should I wave like that? Jim says, I may try the second one. I'll try the second one. And he'd back up the car and he'd wave like the second one. You got it? Yeah, well, I think we got it. And he kept. I like the way he kept looking up at the stars. Yeah. Like he had this weird thing. Yeah. He'd been there before. Oh, my God. It was just great. Shirley had um, butterflies, adhesives in her, just under her, her hair. And it pulled the forehead back. So it took, it made her younger, which is an old Hollywood trick. Terrific. Brooks wanted them out. And he couldn't get Shirley to take them out. So Jack's doing the, I'm sitting on the fence across the driveway from, and he's meeting Shirley for the first time. And and Jack says, yeah, I'll I'll get him out for you. Rolling action. So so you're an astronaut. Yeah, I'm an astronaut. I'm kind of a what do you got in your hair there? I can't help but see what you got. Cut it. Jack, those are adhesives. I'm I'm just reacting to what I'm seeing. I just every take he would finally bing 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 bing. She pulls him out. He looks over at Jim Winks. (laughs) Oh, that was pretty good. And it was great that that it kind of forced her into a different place with it. And 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 God bless Shirley. She really, yeah. uh, you know, at the time, um, she and and God to be fair to her, Deborah had just done Officer and a Gentleman. She's she huge. was it. Yeah, she was it. Right. And Shirley used to be it. Right. Yeah. So there was that, and and it what became about in the Nebraska uh, the um, the um, hospital scenes later in the movie. He wanted the roots to show. He didn't want the perfect hair and all of that. Jim did, and Shirley fought him on that. And Shirley said, and Jim said, I want to dress, I want you to fall apart physically. Yeah. And, you know, for an actress to do that later, that's a lot. That's asking a lot. But she did it. She, she did, did it. it. Yeah. I, I get choked up just now thinking about it. I don't know. Kind she of won the Oscar. Yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah. So, like, okay, so I obviously we can't go movie to movie, but Something Wild had a profound impact on me just because I think that was improv there was a lot of improv on that yeah I, and it wasn't 
what I think of as improv, but it, but it really was. And that was Jonathan Demme before he was really Jonathan right, and it Demme. Had, and it had a feel of a movie that, like, something you'd never seen before. There there were colors in it. There was a pace, the music. Music. Like, you, you know, like, and, and it just had a style that was, like, I had never really seen before. He was very highly stylized right out of the gate. Yeah. And to work with him, what was he like to work with? Did you learn from him? There was no such thing as a bad idea. Right. Oh, Try that's it. nice. Yeah. He could have had... A hundred grand to make the movie or a hundred million. Yeah. Wouldn't matter. He'd, he, Jonathan would have approached it the same way. We get to make a movie today. Come yeah. on, let's go. Let's try that. You'd, yeah. get on, you'd, you'd look out the window and there's a dog sitting on the back of a motorcycle and the dog has a helmet on. Yeah. And you're going, this is a Jonathan Demme movie. <laughs> it's the same feeling I had the year before working on Woody with Purple Rose. You look around you and you go, this is the frame of a... And you're seeing things in it that only would be in a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. And you realize you're with a filmmaker. Same thing with Jonathan. Same thing with Altman. Same thing with Clint. And you've also worked with guys who are just doing the job as opposed to a filmmaker. Or are told to just do the job because, you know, what... It was a different time... Uh, and maybe television is getting back to that, uh, yeah. where where Aaron Sorkin gets to run newsroom with Alan Poole and a couple other people, um, and they aren't told what to do. Uh, right. It's like that. It's Coppola, you know. Even though Coppola had to fight and to 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 get Pacino in the into the Godfather, he still had his battles. But the director was king, right. or queen, and that went away. Suddenly there were. 17 producers on the front of the movie and they all got to get their notes in and and that's I, I, that's that's not great too many cooks I, I that's why squid and the whale with noah baumbach the budget was what a million one or something that's like 20 bucks there was nobody else so when we have to make a change at two in the morning it's noah baumbach and laura linney and me there is no phone call to L.A. to go, is this yeah. okay if we do this? Well, that's why those guys shoot like that. That's why they make the choice to keep the movie small. So but it's single voice. Yeah. Singular voice. Right. Same thing with Sorkin. Right. So, you know, it, that's, and I love that. I miss that. But it, it, the th I think guess the difference is, is that somebody like Bombeck is going to keep making these smaller movies because he can wrangle his own sort of funding and he can have control of the movie. Control, creative control. It's Whereas all about creative control. Aaron has made people fortunes. So, like, you know, he can operate at a different level and they're going to give him everything he needs. Creative control. Right. Creative control. Just the upper, the different, like, the big it's money. The, you know, Spielberg fought for final cut. Creative right. control. Yeah. You know, it's that's what it's about. It's not about, and that that is hard to get. You have to be somebody to get that at a high level or you do a budget of a million bucks so that they don't bother you. Right. And with the, with the theater, with your theater, the Purple Rose, is it called the Purple Rose Theater? Mm-hmm. Now, do you? How much are you writing? How much? How many plays are you kind of producing? On I wrote. Your I've written seventeen, and the one I have up now uh, in the fall here is Diva Royale. I wrote Flint, which we uh, produced in January. I just love writing plays, and it's creative control. I work with one person, the artistic director, and he and I collaborate. We work well together, but. In my theater, the playwright is king, and um, and you're developing playwrights and actors. Yeah, we have six playwrights, um, men and women, uh, who write, who are always writing the next play, and you got to produce these people. Um, 
their first play is you, you get it in as best shape you can and you got to produce it and their next play will be their fifth simply because you produced it. I can't stand the theater companies that do staged readings or workshops of the play, development hell, yeah. and they won't produce it. They'll bring in what was popular in New York last year because it's published, because doing a new play is really hard. You gotta originate. You gotta make those original choices. You gotta cut this scene. You don't cut scenes in Arthur Miller. You know, right. you shouldn't, uh, Tennessee Williams. You can just do it the way it's written. And it's hard to do. But if you can figure out how to do it and how to tell story on a stage, structure, what you need, what you don't, take that joke out because you're spending a whole page just to get to that joke, kill the babies, as we say in writing, Yeah. Um, you learn how to do that. And then you get a voice. And then you get Lauren Knox or Carrie Krim or Jeff Daniels or Dave McGregor. And you get these, you get, and people start to come to see the writer they come to see the writer he or she has written another play yeah. and by the way why don't you write about the people in the seats you know not always but i prefer to write about people sitting in those seats hold a mirror up to them i don't care what you think as the playwright yeah that doesn't interest me i care what you think about what they think yeah and if you write about them they will come and by the way if you make it funny once in a while they'll bring their friends yeah and now is it is it self supporting the theater now? I nope, mean, we're nonprofit. Um, our budget's a little over two million a year. We the box office we we demand a lot of the box office. We we've got to bring in sixty percent box office. Something and are like people that. coming to uh, from all over the world to be part of it, or is it mostly no? I mean regionally. Yeah. I mean we're certainly the audience is a ninety mile radius. Right. We draw actors from Chicago who come out to audition for us. Oh yeah. Um, but we develop the people there. Okay. We take them, we put them through the act, the same acting program I had at Circle Rep, they get. The same apprentice program is is the same one at Purple Rose. And we we teach you how to do what we call being purple. And it's just listening and reacting and and keeping it on the stage. That's what it's about. So have you worked with uh, who I who I talked to uh, Tracy Letts? You know Tracy. Letts? I I I, th- I I don't know. I may have met him. I've oh, never yeah. worked with him. No, he's another guy. Yeah. I mean, he's a pure artist. Yeah, he's a great American artist, and everything the guy writes is just gold. It's crazy, know? right? Yeah, keep writing, Tracy. Don't ever stop writing. Yeah. Now you have got the um, the Emmy for Godless. Yeah, I saw you over there. I was at the Emmys, sitting there. It's, not, it's kind of a tedious evening isn't it oh. <laughs> oh oh i just i mean i walked by you and you did you i was like i'm not gonna say hi to that guy he doesn't look too happy today no it's just my <laughs> overall look i'm just not as as euphoric as everyone else is you know about this incredible opportunity to wear a tuxedo and prob- it, probably lose yeah it's 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 probably an impossible show to do. I guess so. And maybe what we should all do with all these shows, since this isn't really a competition, really, right. um, is take it off television. It doesn't put mean it back much. at the 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 Roosevelt, Roosevelt Hotel, Hotel. Banker, banquet room and hand out the awards and let people have fun. People have fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do we have to televise it? You know, and I know why we have to televise it. But does it mean? Does it? Is it important to you? Does it feel good to win? 
Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. You don't go there not to, you know. And yeah. But look, it, to be invited to the party, yeah. I felt this the first time I got nominated for yeah. the Tonys with God of Carnage. That was the first time I felt, you know what? Win or lose, and I'm and I'm. And we're not here to win because there's the Jeffrey Rush, and there's some. And you're looking around, you're going, I'm part of a lot of great work. Just enjoy that, you know. Right. And I did. I really got it for the first time, which is different than watching it as an actor on television. So just and, a couple of years ago, you finally and you're never invited, and you're. Right. Oh, I never liked him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, he shouldn't have won. He sucks. My friend Kravitz used to call the television the resentment box. <laughs> Yeah, I was, uh, oh boy. Yeah, I, I uh, yeah, Oscars, about 15 minutes into the Oscars, yeah. and I'm in the other room. I can't do it. I yeah, just can't do it. There's yeah, just too much bitterness and hate and rage. But then you win, and you win for newsroom, which you're not supposed to win. You're not supposed to win. There was an audible gasp in the audience when my name was called. The New York Times wrote about it. The gasp? The gas, the audible gas, yeah, when yeah. Mr. Daniels' name was called, because it was Spacey and it was Ham, it was Damian Lewis, it was it was uh, Brian, it was just loaded, loaded, and uh, we got it. I had the Northwestern speech; they didn't have that. Mm-hmm. That's what did it, I think. Uh, but then with Godless, yeah, you wanted that because I took a risk. I took a big risk. Playing with that. heavy. Ah, the beard and the thing and the Western, and it easily could have been, oh, my God, what is he doing? He took a risk, and um, and I wanted it. I, want, I worked hard on that, and uh, and then I, I was glad to win. Yeah. Was but, it? but it wasn't, it wasn't the um, euphoric, you yeah, know, yeah, I'd yeah. like to thank everyone. Oh, my God, this is... It wasn't did, that did at Did you all. talk about the guy who had your horse? I thanked the people that... My driver. Yeah. I right. thanked uh, Mark Warwick, my wrangler, who saved my life one day when the horse threw me off, and uh, he saved my life. Yeah. And then um, I thanked my horse, just to let them know that let's all just calm down just a little bit. Yeah. It's a great honor. Thank you very much. Yeah. But... Yeah, I'm gonna thank my horse, and let's yeah. all let's all think about that. Let's all think about who has anyone ever thanked their horse? Not Maybe John Wayne. Right. Google it. Go yeah. look it up. Get Maybe back to me. Gene Autry. I'm gonna Lago. say no. Yeah. Yeah. So let's do that. <laughs> Not since Trigger. Not since Roy Rogers <laughs> and Trigger. <laughs> but these eras, you know, like cause something like when you talked about Atticus and about researching Atticus and then about like, um, but less so in, in terms of going to the, the old West, which is something we grew up with, which is a, like a genre that, you know, comes and goes. But did you feel the weight of it? Did you feel like, I mean, I have to assume that with Atticus, when you did all that research, that to really engage with that, the heartbreak of it has to be there with you on stage, that this is the way humans behave. Yeah, you gotta you gotta delete the movie because that's not helpful. Yeah, I can't I can't use it. I can't do what he did. I'm not gonna. Right. Goodbye. The book is the source, but it's the play. It's Aaron Sorkin. Atticus makes a change. He goes through a change in this. Less so in the movie, and probably less so in the book because it's truly from Scout's POV. This the play is more about the change that happens to Atticus. So you have to again simplify. 
I want to win this case for Tom Robinson, my first two criminal clients for the last two people hanged in Maycomb. So this is going to be the one I'm going to win. It's going to be good for me as a lawyer. I'm going to do something good for Judge Taylor. And I'm going to get this guy off who's absolutely innocent. That's what I'm going to do. And it's, it's a slam dunk case. Walk face first into that. And then the story is going to take that away from you. Now what do you do? And it can't be just righteousness and being a Mount Rushmore statue about it. you got to go through it. You're a, he's a human being, a living, breathing human being, and he just lost, and this guy's going to the electric chair. I'll get him on the appeal, and then they shoot him. Yeah. And you got to go through that. you got to go through that. And it may not be what they did before, but it's what we're doing now. And, and you get Atticus to kind of go through that emotionally. And then his son is guilty probably of killing Bob Ewell. I have three kids. What would happen Ugh. if your son Yeah. and the sheriff is going, let's go outside and talk on the porch. And you can feel that. Oh, oh you bring it with you. You yeah. use it. Yeah. You use it. Huh. I'll tell you the other thing, too, is um, my dad was uh, an Atticus Finch. He was the guy that everybody in town went to to get advice. He was, there was right and there was wrong. There was how you treat people. He was that glorious Republican moderate who hired the poorest guy in town to clean the lumber company. I remember coming home, 8, 9, 10, walked into our living room. There's my dad sitting with a black man, a guy named Herbie Pearson, Mm -hmm. one of the two black families that had wanted, he had just moved to town. Dad heard about him. Dad had Herbie come to his house. I walked in there laughing at the kitchen table with a black guy. I'm like, Jeff, I'd like you to meet Herbie Pearson. Herbie's going to be working for me. And And he was also the guy who said, when you go to school, because we were in small town standards well off, Small town, well off. Well, yeah. He owned a business. It was doing okay. We had money, right. comparatively. He goes, you find the poorest kid in, in, the, in your class. And if you find that people are making fun of him, you, be, you stand next to him. You be friends with the people on the other side of town. Yeah. And that's Atticus. Right. And I was. And it led me into the theater because that the misfits of the... I, and so I wish he were alive to see this. Yeah. Because my brother and sister are coming to opening night. And I look like him, facially. They're going to see him. Oh, yeah. They're going to hear him. That's going to be great. Yeah. So it's personal. Yeah. To get this opportunity, which is, I'm so fortunate, but... You know, my my wife had said the other day, she go, and she people have asked, and um, is there a role of a lifetime that you wish you could play, King Lear, Hamlet, you know, and I never had one. Yeah. And she said, you've got you've got you've got it now, don't you? And I said, yeah, this is it. That's so great. um, every night is a joy. It really is. That's I great. wish he could see it. I wish he could. He, you know, if you believe in that stuff, I guess he is. And. Well, that's that's beautiful, man. That's so good. So, in closing, uh, any notes on how to uh, transcend resentment? <laughs> I think you need to embrace your resentment. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? To be, I'm still I'm working on that. Uh huh. 
I can go to instant rage. And it's always about lying, cheating, stealing, not being truthful. You know, yeah, it's raining and uh, they're pissing on my forehead and they're telling me you know, all the stuff that's going on today. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, playing hardball right. with what's going on now. If that's sure. the game, then I think those who are uh, with the resistance in a peaceful, nonviolent manner start throwing right hooks. Yeah. If that can be nonviolent. But yeah, do not shy away from that. So that channel that resentment. Yeah, in, we can into, make it about something. Yeah, our, yeah. And I, but I have, I will always, and I, I will always rise up for people who don't do the work, who feel entitled, who, who um, aren't prepared. Yeah. You don't have to outwork me because you're not gonna. But if you're not even doing the minimum, then you're going to hear about it. Yeah, and if I don't know if that's resentment, but that that'll outcomes the rage when that happens. Right. Well, it's good that yeah, I mean, you know, it's reasonable. It's it's the unreasonable. It's for rage. a reason. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. unreasonable rage is the worst. Yeah. No, that's uh, it's like that's, being a uh, six year old. You know? Up the medications. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's great talking to you. I don't think we need to play guitar. You that's need fine. to save your voice. That's fine. We, uh, but you you love playing it. I do. Yeah. You play well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I've been playing. I've been practicing. I keep practicing. I, uh, I'm not sure what I'm practicing for. It's all I do. It's great. It's I like, get those uh, Stefan Grossman videos. and. Oh, uh, you do? So you sit with it? Oh, my God. Stefan Grossman, I got to meet him, and I got a lesson from him. And, oh, it's a very long story. But it, it, but, but Pat Donahue is a guy. I've got, mm-hmm. I got his DVDs that I'm just... That's what I'm going to do during once we get past opening night is sit in the dressing room with my download of Pat Donahue. And Stephen Grossman, guy. yeah, he's look him up. I mean, it's acoustic blues. I oh, yeah. mean, yeah, whatever yeah. you're doing, he does it better. Sure. And you, Kelly Joe Phelps. Yeah. I mean, oh, these no, are guys guy, yeah. that teach and Keb Mo that you just start going. I'm gonna just learn how to do what they're doing, and then you're instantly better. Yeah, I need some new tricks. Like I, you know, I keep. It's, it, I never thought about it as a profession, so it's a very meditative, and yeah, I love doing. It's it. where I go to, yeah, to exactly. chill out. Me I mean, I used to play golf and talk about rage. Yeah. You know the an iron that stuck you stuck to the pin three feet today uh you go out tomorrow and it's in the water and i'm going why is it in the weight no but you learn a riff on the acoustic guitar oh it's the best and it's it's there tomorrow yeah it's the best and you don't have to townsend your guitar at home no (laughs) no reason to start breaking your guitar no well it's great talking to you man thanks Thanks, for doing it i appreciate it I thought that was great. I really was uh, happy that Jeff took the time and that we got to have that conversation, got to know each other a little bit. Uh, Just a really great, memorable conversation. And now let's ease into some thoughtful two-chord guitar playing. Here we go.
lives.